As we turn now to the Word of God and submit ourselves to it, would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Hosea in chapter 8? Hosea chapter 8, and before we read and even before we pray, I'll mention that uh, your bulletin reads uh, that we'll be here in Hosea 8 through 10, and that's not a misprint. Um, before you swallow your gum, I'm not going to, re to read all three of those chapters. Uh, I decided to take these three chapters of Hosea together, not because we need to speed up our pace and hurry up and get there before Christmas. You know, we're not trying to meet a schedule. We're trying to listen to God's word here. Nor are there, you know, do I think that these judgments in Hosea are too much or too heavy for us to handle? It's also not anything in the text that I'm trying to avoid or hide. It's just because the themes in these three chapters are similar enough that I thought we, we could bundle them into one. I won't read the entirety of it, uh, so I'll give you a heads up here. I'll start in chapter 8 and then skip to the end of chapter 10. So we'll, we'll catch the bookends here of these three chapters. On that note... Uh, would you please pray with me? Lord, Jesus has told us, and it is true, that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is, that we value these things as more important to us than food itself. Help us now to really listen to these things, to feed upon them, that they would nourish and challenge us. By your Spirit, would you open our hearts to believe and our minds to see. Guide us, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. I'll begin here in Hosea chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 1, and then I'll let you know where, when we're skipping to chapter 10. Hosea chapter 8, verse one. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I've spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it. It's not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel, for they've gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the kings and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. 
Let me skip to chapter 10, verse 11. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Because you've trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors, therefore the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. This is the word of God. Now, what we find here is really no surprise to us by now in our weeks here with Hosea. The Lord is still continuing his indictment against Israel for the sin of the people. This is not a new thing in Hosea to us, but there's a principle here that we are long overdue to unpack. So today we will focus on this principle, which is this. We reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. He uses that specific farming imagery in here a number of times in, in verse 13 of chapter 10. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice. And back in chapter 8, verse 7, he says, For they sow the wind, and they'll reap the whirlwind. You reap what you sow. Now, First of all, some might say right off the bat, Nathan, <laughs> we know this already. This is obvious stuff. You know, you reap what you sow is a very common saying that everybody knows already. Not, you don't even have to be a Christian to know that. But not every common saying is true. Even some of the sayings that sound Christian, that we think maybe come from the Bible, sometimes are not true. Here's a few examples. God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. It's not true, even though it's a common saying. Here's another one. The devil made me do it. Sounds Bible-y, not in the Bible, and not true. Here's another. We are all God's children if that's applied to every human, not just Christians, but every human, that's not true. It's not what the Bible teaches. Or, or here's the last one, really common. When God closes a door, thank you, I wonder, I hoped someone, he opens a window. Sounds great, not in the Bible. Not true, not even helpful. Because I would imagine there have been seasons of life where you 
felt or have been in a windowless, doorless space. Okay? So instead of trying to, to give each other these sort of pep talks or optimism with our own little invented sayings, it will do us far better if we just listen to the Bible. The good parts, the hard parts, we hear God in his word. And if we listen here, we notice that you reap what you sow actually is here. This is part of God's word. It's not just part of Hosea, it's in other parts of the scripture. The book of Proverbs pulls on this idea many times. So you reap what you sow in Proverbs is true positively. So one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward, says Proverbs. It's also true negatively. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. It's even, this idea is even carried into the New Testament. I know some of this will sound almost the same, but I think it will benefit us to, to read it anyway. In the book of Galatians, uh, Paul picks up on this idea in chapter 6. Uh, where does he begin? Verse uh, 7 of Galatians chapter 6, he writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will also from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So let's not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So there you go. It's in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament, it's in the wisdom, it's in all these places. Now, even though this principle, you reap what you sow, is true in the Word of God, some Christians, especially some evangelical Christians, avoid talking about this idea. I think part of the reason for avoiding it is that sometimes it makes us afraid that talking about reaping what we, we sow will cause us to miss the good news of the gospel of Jesus, you know? That if we focus too much on what we do, we're going to miss what Jesus has done, that it, that it will run the risk of giving people the impression that we're at least partly saved by our works, you know? This idea that, that somehow Jesus is going to just give us the seed of salvation, but it's our job to, to dig a hole and plant that seed and cover it up and water it, and somehow if we're good enough, we're going to reap eternal life. That's not what the Bible teaches, and that's not what's meant by you reap what you sow. This idea of reaping what, what we sow has nothing to do with salvation. Salvation by faith is something only Jesus can do. It all has to be Jesus. But we still need to talk about reaping what we sow. Because Bible truths are not like stop signs. Here's what I mean by that. Bible truths are not like stop signs. So stop signs, you know, the big red octagon, red sign at the intersection, these are good things, yes? A stop sign's a good thing. They, they statistically, if we were to run the numbers, stop signs reduce wrecks and increase safety. That's doubly true for four-way stops, even safer. So why then isn't there at every intersection a four-way stop? Well, because while stop signs do increase safety, 
they also decrease efficiency. That's why sometimes we maybe get annoyed by them. I have to slow down and stop, at least mostly. Uh, so signs work, stop signs work because of the exchange that happens. We trade speed for safety. It's a trade-off. One goes down so that the other can go up. Truths of the Bible are not like stop signs. There's not a trade-off of truths to make them work. All of the truth of God remains true always. So the Father will always be fully sovereign to do his perfect will. Always. Christ the Son will still be fully merciful to save every person who comes to him by faith. Always. The Holy Spirit is still fully powerful to transform believers, to shape us in holiness. None of those things budge by even one inch. They are not decreased by other truths. We don't sacrifice them. Everything, everything, everything is still in God's hand. That's gospel good news to us. And at the same time, it's still true, it's still clear in the scripture that if we sow wind, we will reap the whirlwind. We reap what we sow. So what then can we learn about this? If this is true, we need to understand more of what's happening here. Let me make just a few quick observations. You know, sometimes I do a whole sermon and nice little tidy bullet points. I'll do all of these really fast. So if you're a note taker, lick your pen and get ready. I'll go through these quick. Some, a few observations about reaping what you sow from Hosea and from Galatians that are worth noting. The first is there is sweat involved in this. You know, it takes work both to sow and to reap. It's a sweaty business. You know, when we harvest good things, maybe this is different for you, this is at least my sense. When I harvest good things, I want credit for my labor. Look what I did, look what I made. And there may be nothing wrong with that. That may be good, but when I harvest bad things, that's somebody else's fault, you know? I want to avoid the blame. My sin was an accident. I didn't work for it. That's what I want to believe, but we need to own that we put sweat into our planting, whether we plant good seeds or bad seeds. The first, there is sweat. The second, things are of the same sort, of the same sort. That is, the fruit that grows from the seed is of the same kind as the seed. This is obvious, you know? You sow wheat, you get wheat. You sow wind, you get wind. You sow lies, you get lies. You sow things of the Spirit, you get things of, of the Spirit. Which maybe seems obvious, but if we find ourselves, let's say, arguing a lot, 
I mean, I've noticed that more in myself in recent months. If we find ourselves arguing a lot, we cannot just say that's because other people are dumb. I have reaped something of the same kind. My arguing is because I've sown seeds of the same sort. Seeds, perhaps, of strife or rivalry or bitterness or pride. They come from the same sort. That's the second, the third here. There's slowness in reaping what we sow. There's slowness. That is, it takes a long time for the seed to become a fruit. Which shows us from the perspective of God, I suppose, that God's response to sin is, is patient. He doesn't just see a seed and zap it. But it also teaches us a bit of patience, too. So if you've ever wondered why there is no punishment sometimes for bad things, there is. We just wait for the harvest. Or on the flip side, why is there no reward for good things? There is. We wait for the harvest. There is a slowness in this. Fourth and finally, there's a factor of size. Of size. I mean, notice here in Hosea, the what's sown grows bigger. You sow seed, you get a bigger plant. You sow wind, you don't just get wind. You sow wind, you get a, a whirlwind, he says. So it's growing in proportion to the time and sweat and the sort of seed that is put into this. Now, there's my, there's my four points. The rest of this, well, just good luck following all of this because there's no more points. But I, got, I still have some time to talk, a lot of time, so hang with me. This now brings us to an, a related idea connected to reaping what we sow, which is this. When we sow iniquity, specifically, when we sow sin, justice calls for us to reap from proportional punishment. Proportional punishment. That is, that the consequence should not be too big, nor should it be too little. The consequence ought to be fitting. It needs to be in proportion to what's done. In the Old Testament law, this is what's commonly known as the eye for an eye principle. Know this? This is common, another common phrase that actually is in the Bible. An eye for an eye. If you're just reading through the Old Testament, you'll bump into it every once in a while. So there's several places I could go. But I'll read just a section from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 19. In this case, uh, it's in the context of, of a criminal courtroom of sort of accusation that's happening. This is Deuteronomy 19. Listen for the eye, to eye, eye for an eye principle. I'll pick up in verse... Uh, 18. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. 
and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Well, he really goes all through all the body parts there. You know, we're to make extensions based off of these things to know that the, proportion, the, the punishment is to be proportional. Now, this does not mean, it does not mean that all punishments should be exactly the same as the sin that was originally done. So there, there are times when something like a payment might be a fitting, uh, matching, proportionate response. So, for example, uh, if, if I knock out your tooth, I hope it's an accident, but I'm sure if it's not, you deserved it, right? Uh, if I knock out your tooth, <laughs> uh, this does not necessarily mean that I have to open my mouth and say, give me a swing and, and you knock out one of mine. It might be proportional punishment, say, to pay your dental bill. That might be better for you anyway. So proportional does not mean exactly the same. It means a rough equivalency. And we can imagine, you know, if we had time to sit and talk through this, how this might actually play out in various contexts. So, you know, many of us are raising kids or have raised kids in the home. Let's say one child hits his brother on purpose. Okay? So what's a parent supposed to do in, in that situation? The Bible doesn't give us a specific command. Uh, there's some wisdom and freedom that can be applied here, but we do need to apply the principle of proportional punishment. Doesn't necessarily mean, in fact, it might not be wise to let the brother hit him back in return. You end up with a big old, big old brawl. But, but we don't want the punishment, whatever it is, to be too little. You know, just say you're sorry. That might be too little. Nor do we want it to be too big. You know, you have to, I don't know, stay in your room for a week. That, uh, that uh, sounds like torture to some people. Uh, we want a rough equivalent as best we can. So in the home, there's that. In, in, in a job, let's say, if, if, if I've got a job and I'm coming to work late one time, it's probably not proportional to be fired for that. That would be out of line. But if I come to work over and over late, late and late, a pattern of lateness that I've been warned about and warned about and becomes a problem, it might be in proportion then to be fired for that. Even in the context of, of criminal courts, we apply this idea of proportional punishment. You know, courts are flawed sometimes. We all are. We're humans. But there's an attempt to, to, to dole out punishment, if it's necessary, in proportion to the crime. That's fitting to what the Bible tells us. So something like the death penalty, for example, 
Very controversial. Lots of hot debate about that. A lot of discussion is a good thing even. We know that American government is not exactly the same as the nation of Israel and their government directly under God. So there are lots of discussion to be had. But it's, it's good for us to notice that in the Old Testament law of God, there were times when death was warranted as a proportional punishment for a few things, but most especially for the crime of murder. The scripture doesn't treat all murder the same. You know, the punishment is varied depending upon the level of malice and premeditation. So what today we call involuntary manslaughter is addressed in the Bible, and there's lesser penalty for that, which is not necessarily death. But some of the worst murders, the most egregious examples proportionate punishment calls for life for life. And so the one who has murdered is also killed. Those are just a few examples of ways that might play out in Hosea's day. We didn't get to touch on all these pieces just because of the length of the, of the space. But in Hosea's day, one of the main ways that Israel was receiving proportional punishment was through the coming of war. If you went back and read Hosea all the way through, you would notice that as a thread, a kind of a drumbeat through it, that war is coming. Because Israel had stopped trusting the Lord. You know, God was no longer their shield and, the, and defender, the one who was enough for them. So instead, Israel began to amass multitudes of their own warriors to build up bunches and bunches of fortresses. They even tried to build alliance of lovers, uh, Hosea calls them, an alliance between these powerful nations like Egypt and Assyria. And so the Lord says to them in these chapters of, okay, of Hosea, he says, if that's what you want, okay. You want to prepare for war? I'll, I'll give it to you. You'll reap what you sow, and I suppose we'll see how your new trust plays out as it's put to the test. We know after the days of Hosea, soon after, the nation of Assyria, the one that they'd gone to as the one who, the big brother who they'd hoped would protect them, turns on them and conquers them and carries them off into the exile of war. So Israel, who lived by the sword then, died by the sword. There was proportional punishment given to them. Now, it's a lot of talking about punishment, I know. Heavy things, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and all of that. Some of you at this point might be thinking, okay, that was the way it was in the New Testament, but is that still true, or that was the way it was in the Old Testament, is that, the, is that still true in the New Testament? This proportionate punishment idea, this you reap what you sow, eye for an eye, didn't, you know, doesn't Jesus come and change some things, yeah? I mean, Jesus is full of grace. Doesn't he rid us of the eye for an eye principle? No, at least not in the way that we think. He does change some things, but not everything. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus directly talks about this eye for an eye piece. It's in uh, Matthew chapter 5. 
Let me find it. Verse 38. This is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, you turn him the other cheek also. That doesn't sound better. <laughs> you know, if, if Jesus says, if, if someone slaps you, don't you slap back. Don't you give an eye for an eye. And that sounds like he's now undermining these principles of proportional punishment and reaping what we sow. But what Jesus is actually doing here is not getting rid of these ideas. He's clarifying them. Jesus still affirms the idea of proportional punishment. I mean, if we were to keep reading in the Sermon on the Mount, we would hear him say that with the measure of judgment that you pronounce on others, that judgment will come back to you. So he affirms these things, but what Jesus is clarifying and what he's calling us not to do is that we're not to be the individual givers of that punishment. If someone slaps me, I'm to turn the other cheek. It does not mean they will not be punished in some way, that I am to, to turn the other cheek when you slap me. Because if I'm to slap you right back, that's what we call retaliation. It's not just just punishment. I'm just doing, you know, dishing back what was done to me. And retaliation is often interwoven with sin, with anger. Sometimes pride is wounded in there as well. And there is a tendency in retaliation to overestimate the punishment that's deserved. So the response to the slap, at least in our desire, is not just to slap back, but that slap can easily become a punch back. Or now I'm going to really grind you into dust. <laughs> and that's not proportional punishment. That's not what Jesus wants. In order for proportional punishment to be carried out, it requires the context of community. It's not just one person dishing back on another. It's not just me as the bearer of the iron fist. That others are to be involved in deciding and distributing that punishment. Other people, especially who would be impartial about it. That might be others we know. It could even be as specific as having judges and lawyers and juries involved in all those things. But the principle of reaping what we sow still remains in the New Testament. Jesus does not just do away with it. So Christians are not exempt from any form of punishment just because we have faith in Jesus. It's not as if we carry around a get-out-of-jail-free card for everything. Our choices, we know, carry real earthly consequences so if I steal, I can't just tell the police officer that I'm saved by Jesus. Something is likely to happen to me if I do this. The law then is upheld, and none of this has changed. But here is what Jesus has changed. Apart from Jesus, all of us, Without exception, apart from Jesus, all of us would reap far worse than a whirlwind. We know, if we're honest, 
that we have sown in our hearts and in our lives sin against God. And so the outcome, the harvest or the wage of sin is death. And that's not just a reference to death of the body, as we all do. We get old eventually and and die. This is death, eternal death of the spirit. The wage of sin is a sort of death that would cut us off from the goodness of God. A sort of death that would separate us from God's kindness. A sort of death that might cause a person to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? that sort of death. And this is indeed the sort of proportional punishment that's deserved for our sin. Because let me tell you, it's one thing if you slap the face of your little brother. We know it's quite another thing if you slap the face of your dad. It's quite another thing if you slap the face of the king or the president. What then will come of slapping the very face of God? Not just once, but again and again and again. That's what sin is and what it does. It's a slap in the face of God Almighty. And the sort of punishment deserved for such a thing is unimaginable. So then when Jesus comes, he doesn't just say, hey guys, I forgive you. I love you, so we're all good. What Jesus does is submit himself to death that sort of eternal death, that on the cross he receives the full weight of the proportional punishment in our place, that he took on the fullness of that spiritual death. We have sown the wind, but Jesus reaped the whirlwind. He took the force of that hurricane upon himself, with all of its wind and swallowed the fury of it up until there was not a whisper of wind left and it is finished. That's good news. Hopeful news. So Christian, last word to you. We still need to be mindful about reaping what we sow. Yes. But listen, take comfort. Take comfort in knowing that the eternal wages of sin do not fall upon your head. Jesus has taken your death and has given you his life. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, help us to feel Feel the weight of these things, to know the impact of sin and the the reaping of the harvest of such things. 
Would you cause it to, to guide us in living as faithful people? That we would put aside sin and pursue holiness by your Spirit. And most of all, thank you, Lord, for the many times that we failed to do this and continue to sin against you, that you have put yourself in our place. Thank you for your mercy to save us and for your love to stand in our place. We give you praise in, in Jesus' name. Amen.